and welcome to the December edition of the Waterlog Podcast. My name is Dan Ginolfi. And I'm Howard Marlowe. We're thrilled to be concluding another great year of the Waterlog Podcast and look forward to joining you in the new year. As always, a big thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today for supporting us. On this month's podcast, we have a couple topics to discuss as we finish off a lame duck session of Congress. We'll talk about a recent GOP vote on earmarks, disaster reforms, environmental justice, and offshore wind. Let's get started. So what is a lame duck session? We sort of use that term and assume that everybody knows what it is, but basically you have members of Congress who were not reelected, either because they were defeated or because they voluntarily retired. So they're called lame ducks. As the Constitution was originally formulated, new sessions of Congress started in December of odd-numbered years, and instead of what instead of January of what amount to odd-numbered years. So if you really looked at the calendar and figured out what was going on, you had elections that went on basically in the fall. They didn't always have the same date for all states, but they all voted basically in the fall-winter. And then you would not have the new Congress meeting until the following December. That was one big lame duck. Now the lame ducks are there, and they're only there for a couple months. That makes a little bit more sense. The history, too, <laughs> a little detail, but we still look at it at the point as being undemocratic because people who aren't reelected maybe ought not to have the right to be making big decisions like appropriation bills and all those things that are going to be made over the next few days. Yeah, that makes sense. So a recent GOP earmark uh, vote that happened just last week uh, we thought you all should be aware of. Mayors, community leaders, elected officials, state representatives, and members of Congress have all spent the past few years working very hard to, discur- to secure federal funding that they can bring home to their constituents. And for a moment last week, there was a scare that all of that hard work and the hundreds of millions of dollars slated to go directly to coastal communities and states in need of, every- in need of everything from roads and highway repairs and new bridges uh, to flood protection projects, community facilities, broadband, the list goes on. All that work would be for nothing. As the Republicans took the House, a small but vocal minority pushed for a vote to reinstate the ban on federal earmarks. As lobbyists, we feared that the projects we worked on for over a year to to secure funding for would simply be tossed out the window. Well, fortunately, the vote was 52 to 158, so earmarks will be around at least for another Congress. Currently, members have billions um, in congressionally directed spending going back to community projects that will directly benefit the public. Earmarks were once sort of a black black box of horse trading and other backroom deals that lacked transparency and led to examples of extreme government waste. However, the return of earmarks since they were prohibited has demonstrated how transparency and accountability can provide a safe way to allow members of Congress to bring home the bacon for their constituents in a clear and honest manner. To be clear, Congress has imposed a limit capping the amount of money that can be uh, earmarked at 1% of total discretional spending. So far, it has come nowhere close to that. And just as you said, Dan, basically all of any request for an earmark, whether granted or not, is published on members' web pages. 
and then uh, any earmarks that are granted by the Appropriations Committee, they are published by the committee. So you know everything that's going on. If you want to complain about anything, it's really easy to do. There's no backroom dealing in the sense of coming in with stupid things anymore. They all are limited to local governments and nonprofit charitable organizations or educational ones. Yeah, I, I you know you know a lot more about how earmarks worked, you know, back in 2007, 2008, and, and long before that. Um, and I think that the accountability and transparency here is makes sense, and it really provides opportunities for members of Congress and local elected officials to bring money back to their constituents. So for any local elected official or public works director listening to our podcast, please reach out to us if you have any questions on the earmarks process. We've been able to secure an enormous amount of money for our clients uh, this year for stormwater, beach nourishment, roadway improvements, and emergency flood control structures. So there's a, a, a variety of things out there you can secure money for. So uh, if you have any interest, just let us know. On disaster reforms, uh, the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, has recently criticized the federal government for its fragmented approach to disaster recovery and has called for an independent commission to reform the federal disaster recovery approach. State and local official, officials told GAO that the different sources of funding and timeframes created uncertainty about whether and when they would receive disaster recovery grants. They explained that this uncertainty made it difficult for them to plan their recovery efforts in a way that would optimize their resources. The Department of Homeland Security disagreed, stating that emergency management is a multifaceted endeavor that involves multiple stakeholders across federal, state, local, tribal, territorial, private, and nonprofit entities. And that covers it. That's about covers it. That's a mouthful. <laughs> the problem is that the federal government has, in, in its attempt to respond properly, and I mean that, you know, created incremental improvements that over the past 40 years have been spread across 30 various federal entities, making it difficult for communities to identify who to turn to. I think that that's true. Very much true. It's the same as pre-disaster or resilience in terms of the kinds of things Congress is so, not just federal agencies, Congress is so divided and they have a lot of committees and subcommittees that are considering these issues or have jurisdiction and nobody's talking to anybody else. So it, it's, it's something that really needs to be dealt with so that folks who are hit by disasters can see some more coordinated federal response and a more logical one. I mean, even in our line of business, we focus mostly on hurricanes and floods and things like that. But there's also wildfires, droughts, tornadoes, all sorts of other things that have to be responded to. And uh, it's, you know, a wildly different process than, you know, we do with just the Corps of Engineers. So. Amen to that. It, it's... As you said, 30 different agencies involved with that. It's right. wicked. So the GIO convened 20 experts to a panel who recommended 11 options to improve the disaster approach. Uh, most of those surrounded consolidating programs, prioritizing certain geographic areas, and simplifying the requirements to apply uh, for aid. Now, many coastal communities that we work with have dedicated emergency managers or staff under contract. These individuals are responsible for knowing when and where to turn to receive assistance. But not every community has this. And as communities grow more populated, so do their associated damages, requiring more and more personnel to respond. Can this process be improved? Always. But as you can see, as more and more people go towards populated areas, it becomes a larger and larger response. So it, it sort of is it's a ballooning uh, kind of problem. To that end, actually, the House recently passed the Disaster Survivor Fairness Act, 
which is legislation intend to streamline access to relief for victims of disasters. The bill will expand FEMA's ability to make disaster-damaged households more resilient, don't quite know what that means yet, and expand FEMA's authority to provide more adequate post-disaster housing solutions and ensure a universal disaster application for disaster assistance across all federal agencies, and help provide nonprofits and local governments that administer disaster relief with FEMA reimbursement. Uh, you know, very, uh, very nice objectives, at least. We'll have to see how it works out. Yeah, again, only passed by the House. Um, environmental justice, a, a strong talking point under the Biden administration. Um, the White House has also released an environmental justice, uh, has now released an environmental justice screening tool, which is supposed to help the administration identify communities in need of federal assistance. It is called the Climate and Economic Justice Screening Tool, and took years to develop. The tool will help federal agencies make sure disadvantaged communities get at least 40% of the benefits of climate-related spending as part of the Justice 40 program. In addition, uh, in response to climate change and sea level rise, the Biden administration will give $25 million to each to three coastal native tribes threatened by climate change. So for our final topic today is on offshore wind. Today, uh, which is December 6th, is the first auction in the Pacific for massive floating wind farms. And for those of you on the West Coast, I really urge you to, to, to be warned and vigilant about the environmental, economic, and social consequences of offshore wind. The risk is massive structures built across a vast area of ocean with unknown consequences that will persist for 30 or more years. The East Coast and its coastal communities have really been bulldozed by wind developers over the past decade. Uh, ever since this project, uh, this program began, and have been fighting these offshore wind projects for nearly a decade. I will say this with complete transparency. I am entirely against offshore wind. But let me put things into perspective so you understand where I'm coming from. I understand the urgency in quickly and drastically reducing our reliance on carbon emissions. But offshore wind is not the solution. In fact, offshore wind won't even move the needle. So once the entire 30,000 megawatt Biden plan is put into action, what impact will it have on U.S. energy production? The U.S. utility-scale generation capacity is 1.1 million megawatts. Let's assume that the turbines run at their maximum efficiency of 50%. The entire Biden administration's goal of 30,000 megawatts running at 50% efficiency is roughly 15,000 megawatts. Divide that by 1.1 million watts of the existing electricity generation capacity in the U.S. and express that as a percent. The result is the entire 30,000 megawatt plan results in only 1.36% of our nation's generating capacity. That's a tiny fraction, and that is the absolute best case scenario. As a lover of the ocean and all of its species, I simply can't support projects that will cover over 2.4 million acres of open ocean with over 5,500 turbines that are each taller than the Chrysler building and filled with thousands of gallons of toxic fluids. Wind turbines are notoriously inefficient and unreliable. The costs associated with maintenance and the inefficiencies that gradually grow over time are passed on to ratepayers like you and me. Right now, prices for energy in the UK are skyrocketing because the wind farms they sought to rely on aren't producing energy. Look at who pays the highest cost of electricity around the globe, Denmark and Germany. And Denmark and Germany are the ones selling the technology to the rest of the world. Plus, the environmental consequences are serious. Scientists from around the world have sounded the alarm on the impact to marine ecosystems, specifically plankton development, which forms the very basis of the marine food chain. Marine mammals and avian species, many of which are endangered. 
Bloomberg News actually had to fire, file a FOIA request under the Freedom of uh, under the a request under the Freedom of Information Act to wrench an alarming letter from NOAA's Chief of Protected Species that highlighted the anticipated impacts from offshore wind energy development on the critically endangered North Atlantic right whale, of which only 350 currently remain. Finally, nobody wants to see an industrial wind farm along the coast. Offshore wind will have little to no impact on our nation's electricity production and very little impact on global carbon emissions, especially as developing countries and parts of China are bringing on new coal plants. As a lover of the ocean, I highly encourage you to educate yourselves because big wind is big oil. You never trusted big oil, so why would you trust them now? That's all for today's podcast. We look forward to seeing you in the new year. Have a delightful holiday season, and we will be back with you in January. Take care now.